Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's time. It's it's time for reparations. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. We have always been here. Black queers, we will always be here. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me or sound like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome to The Race Card on Sin 90.7 FM. The time is 3.06 and I'm Poppy Perore, your host for for this afternoon's show. Before we begin, we'd like to do an acknowledgement of the country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet and we pay our respects to their elders both past and present. This land was never ceded and the processes of colonisation, occupation, incarceration and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. You're listening to our one-hour show where we chat politics, current affairs and pop culture with a little bit of a twist, as well as wrapping up the most thought-provoking issues in Australia for the week. Today we look at Reclaim the Night, Mexican Holiday, Day of the Dead, Erica Betts and his racial slur, and our feature on food hierarchy. Don't forget to get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet, at, tweet us at the race card. My co-hosts for this week's show are... Ahmed Yusuf, that's me. And our newest contributor... Avrindathi Lakshmi, that's me. And um, today I went to Carlton and I did some Vox Pops um, that is related to our feature. I interviewed people in the street asking them what certain cuisines they prefer and what prices they were willing to pay for it. I just um, when you go out on a Friday, when you go out on a Friday night, what type, type of foods do you prefer? Um, Japanese. Yeah, probably Japanese. And why Japanese in particular? Uh, I don't know. It's just fresh. It's simple. And Not um. Too Are there certain cuisines that you preference over others? Uh, not in particular, no. Um, so, say on a Friday night, you're going out for dinner with some friends. What type of um, food do you usually go for? Um, I prefer tapas. Tapas? Yeah. Um, you're going out for dinner with friends. What type of food would you usually choose? Pizza. So you like um, Italian food? When you go out on a Friday or Saturday night, what type of cuisine do you usually choose? Uh, probably the variety. Variety. Italian and Chinese and Thai. When you go out on a Friday night, what type of cuisine do you preference for dinner? Um, pasta? Or Asian food? I'm not sure. Um, are you, I don't know, when you go buy Italian food, do you choose something that's cost effective or do you like to splurge a little? I don't care how much I spend. It's, it's nice food. I will eat it. Would you be really... Um, I don't, do you... So we had some thought-provoking responses there. So you two, what do you like to eat out on a Friday or Saturday night? Do you stick to your roots and have food that's close to your culture or do you like to try new experimental things well like i kind of feel like um i'm i'm happy to try new things uh sample a few different kind of cuisines but um i think we'll probably touch on this a, a little bit later in the show but you can definitely tell um from where you go there's definitely cheaper options for certain cuisines than than others um yeah i think the 
participants we had, what I what I could see through those Vox Pops is that food is so much. It's it's a sentimental thing. We connect with our culture through food. We show love through food. Like I know every time I head back to my mom and dad's house. If you're listening, mom and dad. Thank you for all the great food. I, you know, I really enjoy like they they show affection through food, and it's it's a way that they're they're taking care of you and making sure that you're nourished. But you know, it also it also hits close close to the heart as well. Yeah, I mean, also food obviously has that like intrinsic exchange value, and you can see the correlation in, even in these vox pops about like how certain cultures' food is valued more, and certain cultures are valued less, and whether that corresponds to a racial hierarchy is obviously a question that's worth asking um I guess like just generally if you want if you were asking me like what would I usually eat on a Saturday night after like going out with friends um I'd probably say dumplings or something because it's really cheap but like whether dumplings correspond to that labor value is a question that's worth asking and and I guess why is dumplings cheaper than I guess having um a pasta dish or what have you that see that that is seen as more western mm. and seen as more i guess um the norm to have whereas dumplings is well you know that's a little cheap like that's something i can just try for a day and mm. it's not gonna i'm not gonna have to spend so much money on yeah but the labor value as you say is it and i i guess the question you're also asking is um when you when you go and buy dumplings for five, like twenty dumplings for five dollars, you know that someone in the chain is not getting paid enough. There's no way that that kind that amount of food can be worth that little if labor like is literally being like diminished in value. Someone's being exploited, you know, <laughs> along the food the food chain, so to speak. Well, that's really the essence of our feature, but we'll look into that later in the show. We're going to head to a quick music break. Don't forget to get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet at us at the race card. I don't know, I just don't date white guys, which is really weird, but like, it's just like, it's not necessarily a decision I made, it's just something that just sort of came and like, I've noticed a pattern, I guess. <laughs> um, do you think the pattern is, I don't know, like a good, a good thing for you? It's worked in your favour? Yeah, it's, it's worked in my favour, I'd say, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, are you fascinated with people from certain cultures more than others? Like, um, I like the Australian people here. They're really nice. Yeah, yeah, I like the Australian people. But maybe that's because they also actually migrated mostly from Europe. So, yeah, there's a bit of a connection already there. Not most people have, like, grandparents come from Europe and stuff. They have something more yeah. to talk about. Do you have particular preferences of certain culture groups over others? Um, yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> what, what, would, what are they if you are feeling comfortable with? Uh, yeah, I feel a bit more comfortable around Europe, people from Europe or Aussie people, yeah. Or if they at least speak properly English or, yeah, if they look Asian but they, they are from Europe or their parents are European or Aussie, then it's a bit, bit more comfortable. <laughs> no worries, thank you. We have to consider whenever we want to become a relationship first. Uh, I don't believe in religion, but anyway, I mean that the background of the business is important because, for example, a Muslim cannot become friends with a Jewish. Okay, so I don't believe in religions, but anyway, but it has an effect. The other thing is the one of them is religion. The other one is the nationality. For example, in Iranian, cannot. Uh, there are a lot of cases, but you know, it's rare. But you know. Actually, so the nationality, for example, an Iranian cannot uh, marry to, for example, I don't know, maybe Chinese. So they have some conflict. So I think two things that I wish. Given. I'm Francesca Ramsey, and you're listening to The Race Card. You're listening to Sin 90.7 FM, and we are on the race card. Remember, you can get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427-767 or tweet at us at the race card. Now we're going into our segment, The Week That Was, where we highlight what's happened during the past week. This past week, there was the Reclaim the Night rally, a night where women and non-binary people reclaim public space for themselves on the streets. One of our co-hosts, Amina Zad, was the opening speaker. Socialism and economic systems that are built and balanced on the backs of black and brown women in third world countries are anti-women. Imperialism and occupation is anti-women. 
The white establishment of Australia is fundamentally anti-women for its particularly grave history and legacy of torture, abuse and assault of indigenous women. Draconian migration policies are not just xenophobic and racist, it is also anti-women. Avian is one of the most recent examples of the supreme injustice. All detention must be abolished, not simply should we call for the end of mandatory and indefinite detention when this particularly and disproportionately affects women of color. We have Anura who also spoke at the rally, specifically about the issues that women of color face. Anura Logan joins us now. Hi, Anura. Hi guys, how are you going? Hi, good, thank you. Thanks for coming on our show today. So I guess, what made you speak at Reclaim the Night um, the other day? Well, it's, um, it's a cause that's close to my heart. Uh, growing up in an Indian community, uh, victim-blaming mentality is quite rife. And, you know, you probably would be aware of the fact that in India there's been a lot of uh, pretty notorious sexual assault and rape crimes that have come to light over the last few years and there have been multiple protests held around the country so my mother and I went for the Reclaim the Night March back in 2013 uh, in Brunswick and it, um, it, was a, it was an honour to speak at the, the march this time and also mention that I was reclaiming the night in honour of Jyoti Singh who was one of the, who was the victim of a, the infamous Delhi rape that happened three years ago. Um, and do you feel in, I guess, rallies like that, there needs to be more of a space um, for women of colour? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I mentioned when I was talking, the, the sexual harassment that we face, it's often racialised and adds another aspect, um, you know, to, to the issues that we face. And also we're often uh, the example used by a lot of, you know, mainstream uh, writers to say that things are not so bad for the women of this country because look at what's happening in women over, you know, around the world and look at what's happening to women in India. We're sort of used as a justification for um, silencing discourse about women's rights in the Western context. Um, I, I guess for allies, um, how, what can they do to support women of colour and to have their voices heard? I think the, the most important thing that they can do is to listen um, to our experiences because I think it's very hard for a woman of colour to share her voice when no one's willing to listen without, uh, you know, interrupting or providing their own interpretation of what she's going through. You know, there's been a lot of channels um, on social media that have sold spaces for women of colour that I found really helpful and there's a lot, you know, you just learn a lot even from being a silent um, member of the channel. And I feel like if um, if other people were able to listen to their experiences, they'd just have a, you know, a better understanding of what women of colour go through and then they'll be able to include them, you know, uh, on any kind of platform in a more culturally sensitive way. Are you hoping that more women of colour would be keen to join movements like Reclaim the Night when they see, you know, women of colour speakers, speakers that are showing diversity? I hope so. Um, you know, uh, I, I really hope so. I think the more the more representation there is out there, the more, you know, people that will be inspired. Sometimes when, you know, you look at marches and you look at rallies and you see exclusively white faces, you think that that's not something that's, you know, part of your culture and something that would be right for you to do, you know, just because that's the way you've been, that's the way you've grown up. So having other people of, of colour and other types of people speak at marches, I think, is just an inspiring thing because you automatically can imagine yourself, you know, there and being part of the cause. All right. Thank you so much, Anura. Um, that was Anura Logan on the air there speaking about her time at Reclaim the Night. We're going to head to a quick music break. Don't forget to get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on zero, oh, zero, oh, sorry, 0427 767 767 or tweet us at The Race Card.
listening to Sin 90.7 FM and we're on the race card. Remember, you can get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427767767. I'm sorry, I'm not doing well with numbers today. Um, or you can tweet at us at the race card. We really enjoy our listener contributions. And, and talking about contributions this week, uh, we've, we've gotten an interesting contribution from <laughs> Senator Eric Abetz. Um, he used a racial slur in an interview with TU, TUE host Justin uh, Smith saying um, the term Negro. Um, and he apparently thought it was okay to say. Um, loading he, up the when, we were, when was he saying this? He was saying this when referencing an, an African-American Supreme Court justice, which is, I think, disrespectful on a lot of levels. And uh, here's, here's him saying it. Oh, sorry. That was a, a mistake on my part. You know, like sometimes we have one track playing at a time and another time we've got another track. But, but here is Eric Abetz. Those sort of analogies are quite offensive and that sort of... No, it's not. I, it is not no, offensive. It was, well, was completely debunked by Justice Clarence Thomas, the need... Well, uh, I think that is a bit of a, a blurry one, but I'm going to find another one to play. Just just hold on a moment. But I guess right now, why don't we talk about his use of the term and, and I guess why do you think he used that identity? Um, I think Abed said in an interview yesterday that he thought it was okay because he's heard other prominent black people in the past say it. So he referenced Barack Obama and Martin Luther King. I think this is, I guess, a typical sort of white-splaining way of thinking of things about saying, like, well, if it's okay for you to say it, it's okay for me to say it. Um, and it just shows that Abetz has obviously no tact. He has no understanding of the world. And unfortunately enough, he's been caught out. Um, I think there's a certain power dynamic when it comes to racial slurs. Yeah. Uh, people of colour have often reclaimed racial slurs from their oppressors. And, you know, it was all rooted in colonisation. It was all rooted in oppressors, you know, calling their slaves 
you know, these horrible things. But I guess now that we're in the 21st century and we're more of a globalised world, um, people of colour are very happy to re- re- reclaim these terms. But there's a difference between that and a white person think- thinking it's okay for, for them to use it just because they've heard, say, a POC friend of theirs use it, which there's there's definitely a power dynamic between that and there's there's a structure there that it isn't going to get erased, unfortunately. No, it's not. It is not offensive. It was completely debunked by Justice Clarence Thomas, the Negro uh, American on the Supreme Court of the United States dealing with this issue, who dissented on the issue of marriage as well. And so trying to bring race into it has now been completely dropped. So apparently... Bringing race into it has been completely dropped, according to uh, Senator Abbott. And, you know, I, I kind of think when when you've got someone like Senator Jackie Lambie coming out and saying, you know, I think it's time, um, I think it's time you call it a day on Parliament. Um, there's something wrong. And uh, here, here's a little bit of what um, Jackie Lambie had to say um, coming up. You know, so I think if he's given up, that's not going to help the Liberal Party in the future. That's certainly not going to help Tasmania. And uh, there doesn't look like there's any enthusiasm or, or life left in Erica Betts whatsoever. Yeah, so um, hard words by uh, Jackie Lambie. No life left in Erica Betts whatsoever. I guess, you know, the issue with me right now is I'm thinking Erica Betts is in the Liberal Party. Yes, I know that. Um but it's 21st century. Mm. Um, we're in a stage where calling black people Negroes is um, probably not the right thing to do. Um, and uh, I know Eric, um, I, I, I think I can call him Eric. You know, we're on a first name <laughs> basis at the moment. Um, is, is, is from a different era, is from a different generation. But I think it's safe to say calling black people Negroes is maybe mm. for the past. And even if he's using it in an endearing way, like he's saying that word as, you know, my friend, that's still not okay. That's not a term of endearment because you are, it is a derogatory term and it has bad roots that actually won't get erased. Oh, but, but also um, people usually associate um, the term Negro and use the, t- the N word mm. and, and they think it's, Negro is the more respectable word and and I guess the issue here is that it was because it was the more respectable word and it kind of like classed different black people in different ways and more often than not that class was due to um, colorism and um, certain black people who were darker skin in, in I, I guess it's a very American context mm. would be pl- would be would be on the field um, picking I guess cotton and and what have you and the house Negro would be inside so so I guess that that in itself is obviously showing um, a, a, I guess a, a splitting of the two people of uh, of similar background who have a similar story um, and trying to create division. Mm. There's also an argument that there are slurs used against white people as well, like the word cracker. But unfortunately, I can't take that seriously when I say it, but um, there's actually those connotations aren't as bad though and the word cracker hasn't been used for centuries to actually dehumanize and um and oppress an entire group group of group of people and you know it is i think now these days we don't really we don't hear it very much it just sounds like we just think of the food but but also i I guess the thing is when we talk about these things like we talk about social structures we talk about um people who have um i guess more uh, more agency, uh, more power, and and the history and social connotations of those words. But you know, we're going to be taking a music break, and you know, I hope you've been feeling this because we're feeling you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I know. I, I, hey, 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 hey! You might not know what that's in reference to, but our next song, Wonder Girls, I feel you. So just know that the race card definitely. You. Do you um, have you heard of the term white privilege? White privilege? No, not really. What do you think it means? I wouldn't even know. No, what haven't got a clue. Don't know. Seriously. 
privilege means being able to uh, go where you want without fear of being attacked um, or like persecuted for how you look. Yeah. Hey. All right. So no, five seconds. Five seconds. Good for it. All right. So, what does the term white privilege mean to you? Yeah. What does what? White privilege. Uh, there is not such a thing, man. Not for me. No, man. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We're all the same. Blood is red, we're all the same. All brothers. What does the term white privilege mean to you? Uh, well, privilege for white people, I guess? Yeah, so. Is this like racism kind of stuff? What does it mean to you? Oh, I guess. Centrelink? White privilege. I guess is the kind of um, specialty or privileges that the white people have here. I'm, I mean, we are talking about the local white Australian. They're having, you know, having access to welfare, housing, and everything that is um, being state provided. I assume. What does the term white privilege mean to you? Um. Wow, that's a <clears throat> that's a pretty hard hitting question. Um. I suppose white privilege is kind of a monopoly of power and ideas when it comes to things like business, politics, government, media, uh, even things like the police and the military, dominated by people who all have uh, a collective set of assumptions that never get tested by the people around them. You're listening to The Race Card. I'm Rahman, and you're listening to The Race Card. Uh, we're back in the studio today, and here we have Arundhati Lakshmi for the first time in the studio, our newest contributor, who has her first feature piece for our show. Ooh, so everyone, Halloween is coming up, as you probably all know. But to stem the tide of cultural appropriation that is upon us, we have an interview with Coral Montero-Lopez, who's talking to us about the Me- the Mexican roots of the holiday Day of the Dead. Now, if you don't know what Day of the Dead is, it's just generally um, a holiday that celebrates death. It's very, it's very much a Mexican holiday. However, its sort of cultural... Its cultural roots have bled into Halloween. So that's... Maybe why you've seen makeup trends such as sugar skulls that have been around, and mostly white people using these sort of trends in their makeup. So basically, here's an interview to just let you know what is Day of the Dead, and maybe why you should consider dressing up with these cultural, um, in these cultural costumes before you go out for Halloween. I'm here with Coral Montero Lopez, and today we'll be talking about Dia de los Muertos and Halloween and the debates regarding cultural appropriation and the roots of both holidays. Coral is an archaeologist and anthropologist and an honorary adjunct lecturer at the University of New England, and she's here today on the race card to talk to us about this issue. So first, I was just going to ask um, briefly, what is Dia de los Muertos? Well, Dia de los Muertos is... uh... Nowadays, it's a syncretic uh, celebration of death. It's got its roots in pre-Hispanic Mexico, um, which was pretty much known as Mesoamerica. um, That's an area that covers most of Mexico and Central America as well. It didn't go all the way to the south, so it doesn't include Peru and the Incas. And it started as a celebration of death through life. Once the Spanish arrived to Mexico, it incorporates a lot of the motifs or significance that we know nowadays, mm-hmm. but its roots are definitely pre-Hispanic, so it goes back to 2,000 years old. Okie dokie, so it's got some pretty like significant historical roots. 
Yes. So what we see nowadays with like the skulls painted and the happy faces, it wasn't back then. Back then it was just, you know, just put flowers to the dead and invite them to come over and have a feed with us. Okay. So all these things we see, like colorful things, are an addition put one like later. And what we see now, like from, because the main thing for Mexicans would be putting an altar mm-hmm. in our homes uh, with some offerings. But what has actually transpired to other places in the world is just like the symbols of the dead, a lady yeah. uh, wearing clothes. So that's just one of the elements, but that is just one of the ten elements that should be there present. <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, I guess so it does have like very significant religious and cultural roots. Yes, exactly. So it gets like um, a mix between the two and it gets folklorized. That's what we call So oh. it's more like a celebration of a carnival rather than its past tradition. Oh, well, and nowadays, at the mercantilism point of view of people yeah. selling it, <laughs> the fake yeah. cover. <laughs> I mean, I guess that like fades like quite well into its relationship with Halloween now, and like I think most people would know Halloween has like Catholic roots as well, but it's obviously become yes. like quite capitalist. I guess. Um, what was your opinion on that sort of like bleeding in of like the two holidays? Like, well, they have a lot of things in common because both of them were again rooted with the harvest period. Mm-hmm. So it's usually towards the end of August, September, because the original dates were actually in August. Like the celebration of uh, the Day of the Dead in November comes with the Spanish. Yeah. Um, so both of them would share, like, getting dressed, getting dressed up for either dances or celebration in a celebration mode. And also the, the um, one of the parts that is very important is having food. So both of them have that element in common. But the main difference, for me at least, is Halloween is a party that is celebrated on the streets, it's mm-hmm. outside, mm-hmm. as where Day of the Dead used to be. If you go to traditional areas of Mexico, there it is still a very family-rooted event inside mm-hmm. your houses, and you invite the dead and the visitors to come into your house. You don't go so much outside to the streets from house yeah. to house. Yeah. yeah. I guess in that sense, what, what do you think about um, people who aren't Mexican, who celebrate Halloween, who sort of um, take cultural elements of Day of the Dead, like um, sugar skulls, and sort yeah. of bring them into their like outward celebrations or their outward parties and stuff? What, what's your opinion on that? Well, personally, because I think Mexicans themselves, we, well, ourselves, we identify as a mix, like that's the meaning actually of the word Mexican is like a mix of Spanish and traditional pre-Hispanic. Mm-hmm. You can't really put a line to define what's what. Yeah. To me, the fact that other cultures now are embracing the Day of the Dead, it actually keeps that alive. Mm-hmm. Like, rather, I'd rather have it shared and adapted to other cultures than being dissolved in time and disappeared. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Someone who's more traditional, who still lives in Mexico City, they would have more of a problem seeing that appropriation. But um, but other people might argue that um, it dilutes maybe the like the original meaning. I guess do you yes. think that might be an inevitable or whether you think- I think it's definitely inevitable inevitable <laughs> in any culture to be honest. Like with now with the internet you can go and Google any celebration of whatever and you can bring it you know, personalize it or not. Mm-hmm. It's up to you. Yeah. But to me the fact that also we get to share a little bit of how we see the dead in Mexico, like, death is not something scary, but it's a celebration. I think some other cultures where they still believe that it's a very scary thing and that, you know, this image of the skeleton is going to come and break life. And <laughs> where in Mexico, that the main gods that rule the underworld were just there ruling, taking care, making sure that the that the souls would get to the levels of final rest. Mm. Would you say for, I say non-Mexicans very loosely, would you say for people who aren't Mexican, um, who want to, like, uh, get involved with, like, Day of the Dead celebrations, um, what would you say is important for them to remember? If they want to be, like, a true more, like, more honest to, to, to the celebration of the dead, I would definitely invite them to put, like, an altar mm-hmm. in their houses, you know, put some flowers, and if there's someone who has just recently died, Put up an image of them, like a photo, and put the favorite food, their you know, their drinks or toys or whatever it was very personal to them, and just think for that one night about you know how good their lives were. Celebrate, talk about the good times rather than the bad times. I'm Gary Vaughan, yeah. and you're listening to the race car. 
that was Carl、um, speaking to us about Dia de los Muertos. So, if you wanted to learn more about Dia de los Muertos, Carl will be speaking at Imbigan Bookstore on Tuesday regarding the holiday, and you can book your tickets through Laneway Learning website. Uh, we're going to head to a quick music break. Don't forget to get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on zero four two seven seven six seven seven six seven or tweet us at the race card. And also, apologies for that little bit of a mix-up. You know, like you know, you lose lose track paneling the you know the the wheel. It's not a wheel, but anyway. This is Amir Rahman, and you're listening to the race card. You're listening to the race card on Sin ninety point seven, and now we're on to our feature: food racism, or more specifically, hierarchy within food. I saw a blog post earlier today on the fortnightly standard, and it was an a, a post about the disappointment at the night noodle markets in cities like Melbourne, where they're fixated on food. We love our food, and like I said earlier in the show, food is so much. Of part of our culture, we show love through food. We show sentiment through food. And this post was saying there was he, the person was very upset at the prices for certain cuisines of、um, you know ethnic cuisines like Vietnamese food, Chinese food that was quite expensive. So、um, in response to that, I interviewed Yan Kok, a second generation migrant and law student at Monash University, whose parents own a Chinese Malay restaurant in Clayton, and the struggles that they faced over the thirty years of opening the restaurant, and what they want to do in the future with the restaurant. Your parents own a restaurant in located in Clayton, and it's a Malay Chinese restaurant. What made them open the restaurant? Um. I know that my father has been in the food industry since he was very young. He didn't receive much formal education in Malaysia before he came with my grandma to Australia.、Um, but I also think he's just very good at cooking. And I guess when my parents got married, they actually met while working part time at another restaurant. They decided that they wanted their own business. Okay,、um, and so when? How long has the restaurant been opened for? It's almost been open for thirty years. You've grown up in the restaurant, haven't you? I have. So I think I came at kind of an inconvenient time for them in terms of the business. So I've I've grown up with the restaurant, or I grew up in the restaurant, to be more accurate. Spent a lot of my childhood there, but then as I started going to school, my parents actually took quite a lot of effort to make sure that you know I wasn't at the restaurant too often. They, you know, wanted me to be at home with relatives or with my grandma, and then later on with my younger sister.、Um, and I really actually started working at the shop quite recently, at the beginning of my undergraduate degree. And、um, what type of changes have you seen in the restaurant? Say when you were a child to what it, what it is now. I would say that it's mostly, I think, the clients who come to the restaurant. So there, I remember when I was a lot younger, there were a lot of、um, Malaysian Chinese university students who came and frequented the shop. You know, my mum built up a really good. Relationship with them, she was kind of the de facto mother hen. So providing these students with a taste of home, but also you know a motherly connection. So if they had any problems, they could always come and talk to my mum. And they also you know provided me with some free tutoring <laughs> on the side. So,、um, but more、yeah. recently, there've been less and less students from Malaysia. So I don't know if it's a general trend that there are. Less students coming from Malaysia, or if they're seeking their food options elsewhere. But it's more now, I think, older working people, the students who stayed in Australia after their undergraduate degrees,、um, still come back, and they actually come back now with their children. So I think at the time there weren't very many Malaysian Chinese restaurants anywhere. So it was kind of a place where. Yeah, it was a home away from home, not just in terms of food, but in terms of you know the community feeling. With the with the clientele now, do you think it's more of a 
is it a very multicultural sort of clientele base or is it mainly just um i guess like Austra- like you know white australians um i think it's uh it's on and off to be honest i think recently um the newest trend in terms of general chinese cuisine has been moving towards dumplings and our restaurant doesn't serve that so i think the clientele it, we've retained a lot of our older white Australian customers who have been coming for, you know, decades. Um, but we're getting less new clients. And with the existing clientele, is it hard to sort of maintain a relationship with them? Do they come in regularly or is it, you know, is it a type of thing where you see them every so often? Um, I think the really dedicated ones come very often. So, for example, we have a family who's the grandpa of the family lives in Moorabbin and his adult children and now adult grandchildren live in like Emerald and Jembrook. But they still come about every fortnight to take the grandpa, the Moorabbin grandpa to our restaurant to eat. Um, so we actually do see the most regular ones on a weekly basis. Some people, I think, you know, when they move places, they move out of the vicinity of Clayton they don't come as often, but if they are in town, like in this area, they do pop by. Um, and I think that's not, it's not just about the food though, it's about the relationship they have built with my mum, who's in charge of front of house. Um, apart from the regular clientele, uh, the type of people who say just see your restaurant on the road and drive past and they think, oh, this is, you know, interesting, I might go in. Do you ever get them complaining about the prices? We certainly do. Um, we've had some people, especially um, newcomers, will complain that, you know, certain seafood dishes are expensive or certain noodle dishes are expensive. Um, and we tend to not see those people again. But we'll find that regular clients are very accepting and accommodating when we do have price increases, which only happens about, I would say, once every two or three years. And it's only by an increment of, you know, 50 cents. Do you think that's indication of where your restaurant is located? Because, you know, out of suburban restaurants typically have lower prices to, say, restaurants within the city and within the CBD. So do you reckon people are expecting a lower price because they're travelling out all the way to Clayton for it? I think that's one of the factors that we're a suburban restaurant. But I also have a feeling that it's attached to the cuisine. It's an inherent part of, you know, general Asian food that it is expected to be cheap. The reasons why we haven't increased our prices more aggressively is one fear of losing clientele and also my parents' consideration of the students from, who go to Monash and come to our restaurant to eat because there are some items on the menu my mum refuses to increase the price on because those items are directed at international students. But everything else has changed. Like prices of raw ingredients, of utilities have all increased dramatically. And it's getting to a stage where it's quite hard to um, keep our business as profitable as it once was. The cuisine at your restaurant is very much um, like the the actual food in in Malaysia. So you keep it very true to its roots. Do you find it's sort of hard to alter it to Western palates? I think that we. I feel like we have essentially two separate menus to cater to different palates. Um, we have the we have you know items on our menu which are you know traditionally associated with, you know, Chinese takeout. And we also have menu items that are associated perhaps with hawker stalls in Malaysia. Um, but I'm finding that a lot of our, um, our West, like our white Australian clientele are becoming more adventurous in wanting to try these hawker-style dishes oh. and actually finding themselves really enjoying them and, you know, wondering why they had stuck to other dishes that they had perhaps been more familiar with but been having for, you know, far too long. So the fact that your parents' restaurant has been around for 30 years, it's clear that you've shifted to the market and you've shifted to the changes around the area. Do you think that's something that 
restauranteurs have to do, like um, ethnic restauranteurs have to do in order to sort of stay afloat? I think to some degree. See, my, my father's a very stubborn chef. There are very little things that he is willing to change on the menu. So, for example, while we maintain most, our menu hasn't, I think, hasn't changed in 30 years. It's largely remained the same. Well, I think that my parents are very stubborn in that they haven't done much of that. Um, A lot of the dishes that we have on our menu today are, I think, very similar to what we had on the menu 30 years ago. Um, But the difference is my father is now forced to come out with different weekly specials to try and keep the customers. But one thing they haven't done is perhaps submit to the dumpling trend because it just isn't a part of our daily cuisine. It might have been for, I guess, some people in other parts of China that is a staple part of their cuisine. But for us, dumplings are something that we have perhaps once in a while as a, you know, a different type of dinner to what we normally have. So they've been quite resilient in maintaining that certain hawker dishes are what we're famous for and what we'll keep on making without changes. To add to that, another question about food trends. In Melbourne, you know, people love their food. We're such, you know, there's such a culture around um, how we enjoy our food. And what I've noticed is um, fusiony food has definitely um, come, well, gotten, I guess, like become more popular. And with that, there's a sense of, say, Westerners and people who aren't like your father trained in cooking ethnic cuisine. And so there are these white chefs who are, in a sense, appropriating ethnic cuisines. Do you find that your restaurant is competing with? with those types of restaurants? I find that the competition isn't direct, but I was the appropriation of, you know, Chinese cuisine and Malaysian cuisine, I think has the, has a negative effect where Western customers who have only been exposed to this new way of cooking suddenly doesn't recognize another way. And they come in and they tell us that what we've done is wrong. Or they have, you know, preconceived notions of what should be on the menu. And when they find that it's not on the menu, they get quite frustrated. Um, that was our interview there with Jan Kok, a, um, a law student and child of, um, of Chinese Malaysian migrants who own a restaurant in Clayton. You can hear an extended version of the interview on our SoundCloud, we'll put it up on there later. Mixcloud. Mix, sorry, Mixcloud, not you know, Soundcloud. Like, sorry, like we're, not, we're not making listening, beats. If, if yeah. Mixcloud is listening to this, they're going to be like, why aren't they plugging us? Why Mixcloud is also free. <laughs> All right. So, like, I'm just saying it's better than Soundcloud. <laughs> let's, like, uh, let's who is get... Soundcloud? All right. Um, but anyway. Let's get into our discussion. So, I chose to do the segment because I feel like there is a downward appreciation on ethnic cuisines. And in the West, there's a perception of what how we should price western i mean how we should price ethnic cuisine and a hierarchy between certain foods so and i think that ties in with the exchange rates that our dollar has our strong dollar has overseas and people are more you know they'll they'll go overseas to malaysia and say oh the street food in malaysia is so cheap why is it so expensive in australia but completely missing the fact that there are labor costs to th- you know to consider and the price of produce is quite expensive as well but also um, what i found so interesting with what what Jan said was the fact that people would come to her parents' store and say, um, "Excuse me, um, that's not Chinese Malaysian food, actually." Um, so uh, I'll t- uh, let me let me tell you how to cook your own food and 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 try to do your culture better than you actually can. Mm-hmm. So that that kind of that that took me aback totally because. Just the idea that someone would have the audacity or caucasity to. <laughs> yeah, a, a friend of oh, mine. We love our puns on the race card. Uh, a friend of mine taught, taught me this term called caucasity, but anyway, moving on. Uh, yeah, to, to come out and, and tell someone that, hey, you're doing your food wrong. Mm. And I think um, there is a certain way that we do 
change the food to Western palates and we do accommodate for different tastes. And the food that you will taste here is very different to the food that you will go go and go and taste overseas and it's it's like we all we love our food and we love to know that we know our food well so from what Jan said it is very offensive to her parents when her you know her dad has been trained for 30 years and he has actually shifted to the market and has actually it's despite the fact that he he was stubborn he actually has considered what people like and what people will buy in order just to, st- to stay afloat. So unfortunately, we'll have to cut that discussion short. If you have anything else you want to say, please go on our, you know, go on our Facebook, tweet at us. We love our listener contributions. That's our show for the week. We hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to podcast uh, podcast it if you've just tuned in and want to hear the entire show. You can follow me on Twitter at hashtag. I mean. Hashtag, hashtag. Hashtag. This is the second time I've done this uh, uh, at Poppy Peru. And for our co-hosts, you can find Ahmed at... Ahmed Yusuf 10. At Rum Lakshmi. Um, great. So thank and also, you. And also, and also, let's not forget, you can find The Race Card at The, the Race, Race Card. Card. <laughs> but, also, but also, when you do look for the podcast, you can find it on mixcloud.com forward slash Ahmed Yusuf 10. I didn't pick that particularly. I'm not trying to be an ego, egotist <laughs> yeah, right I've now. I've actually been thinking about that lately. Well, um, it, it's, just because, it's just because I made that for myself and then I realised, oh, I've got a radio show that I'm doing, so I need to make that a priority. So I prioritised the radio show over myself. Um, <laughs> and, and, yeah, you can find it on iTunes, um, searching race card, and, yeah, that, you know, listen to the race card. We'll see you on next week's programme. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 